Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. A new film titled Filmmakers for the Prosecution retraces the hunt for evidence to be used to convict the Nazis at the first Nuremberg trial by brothers Bud and Stuart Schoelberg, who served under movie director John Ford in the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. It's directed by Jean-Christophe Klotz and based on Sandra Schulberg's 130-page monograph of the same title, Filmmakers for the Prosecution, that was published in 2014. The film opens in New York this coming Friday at DCTV's Firehouse Cinema at 87 Lafayette Street, and it is with great pleasure that I welcome Sandra Schulberg to our show now. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. Leonard, you've you've interviewed many very accomplished people in your long career, and I'm honored now to join that group. Well, this is a fascinating film. I'm very happy to talk about it. It tells the story of the four-month investigation across a devastated Europe in search of visual evidence of the, the most heinous crimes in history. Um, uh, the, the, it was a hunt for evidence that could convict the Nazis at the Nuremberg trial. Wasn't there already plenty of evidence of Nazi crimes during the Holocaust without having to use films to convict the top Nazis after World War II? Well, it is really extraordinary, first of all, when, when you think that the International Criminal Court, which, you know, decades later grew out in a way of the Nuremberg uh, International Tribunal and has taken, you know, has required almost a decade in some cases to, to, you know, assemble the evidence and prosecute certain cases. It's really extraordinary that the Nuremberg trial took place so soon after the end of the war. And uh, they were under extraordinary time pressure but the fact is that in that small amount of time from the end of World War II in Europe, May 8th, to the start of the trial, uh, May 8th, 1945, to the start of the trial, November 20, 1945, they did find an extraordinary amount of documentary evidence of the Nazis' crimes. and. Justice Jackson, um, and this was the source of a falling out he had with uh, OSS Commander Bill Donovan, who initially planned to co-prosecute the uh, at Nuremberg with Jackson. Uh, Jackson felt very, very strongly that the Nazis' own documents didn't lie. Uh, that that the case should be based almost entirely on the documents and not on witness testimony, which could be impugned by the defendant's uh, lawyers. Uh, so they began this, they began the, the trial in that way. And, you know, there were millions of pages of documents. Some of them were read directly into the uh, record and had to be translated in three other languages. So it quickly became stultifying. And therefore, Jackson decided he, he had these two films that the uh, OSS team had assembled, Nazi concentration camps, uh, and second of all, the Nazi plan. 
And he decided uh, to show Nazi concentration camps at the beginning of the second week of the trial because he could tell that he was losing the interest of the world press and uh, and the, the observers in the courtroom, etc. So uh, that film, as you may as you may know, and as as one might have expected, caused a sensation in the courtroom. So you have to wonder why the the Germans filmed the concentration camps. Were they proud of what they were doing? Or were they just trying to keep a record of what uh, was happening during the, the time they were in power? I think both of those things from, you know, what the scholars tell us that, uh, I mean, I became very, very close with Ben Benjamin Ferenz in, in the last, uh, during this whole process, our last surviving Nuremberg prosecutor who's about to turn 103 and just received the Congressional uh, Medal for his his work uh, throughout his long career. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he does, from his, from talking with him and his own research and his, his interrogation of, of the uh, defendants in his courtroom, he says that they needed to document uh, that they were carrying out this policy, and so they were not shy. And he's he's told me that in some cases they might even have exaggerated somewhat the numbers because they wanted to impress their uh, colleagues and their superiors. The the, the act, yes, go ahead. No, no, finish what you're saying, please. Well, the, the other thing I was going to say, however, that I think it's important to understand is that there is actually very, very little footage of of the uh, gassing of human beings uh, or of their being uh, shot to death. And uh, as we say in the film, there was a huge amount of film uh, destroyed in it during the period that Bud and Stewart and their colleagues were searching for it. We see film uh, burning uh, in big piles in the film, yeah, in your film. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as Bud says, as my uncle Bud says in the film, uh, you know, God knows what was what was lost in those film fires. I mean, he describes in one case, you know, acres of film that were uh, that he came upon in one salt mine uh, where the you know the the embers were still hot and they did pull a few frames of film but most of it was destroyed uh, there is and and I think that is why the the footage that there is one very rare piece of footage that wasn't even uh, known about at the time of the trial and wasn't presented in either of the two OSS, OSS films, wasn't presented in the courtroom, therefore, that my father found in the Berlin apartment of one of the top-ranking SS officers, Arthur Neba, that he found after the war while he was reconstructing the uh, the while he was documenting the, the story of the trial itself. That's the film that 
uh, he was contracted to make by the War Department after the trial ended, which is called, which he titled Nuremberg, It's Lesson for Today. And in that film, uh, and you see a tiny clip of it in Jean-Christophe's film, Filmmakers for the Prosecution, the but what he found... What he found was the uh, what is considered to be the first experimental gassing documented on film while it's happening huh. of of inmates of the the local uh, hospitals sanitation uh, sorry sanity ward uh, people who were incarcerated there in a so-called hospital setting who were mainly resistors to the Nazis. And in the, in this particular shot, you see these naked, very emaciated people mm -hmm. being escorted into a small brick building and uh, by, by men and women in white coats who appear to be medical personnel. And then you see the uh, pipes running from an automobile directly into the wall of this building. Uh, so that is actually one of the few cases that we have of the actual gassing while it's happening. Now, at the time the, the search began, your uncle, Bud Schulberg, was already famous for his first novel, What Makes Sammy Run, although that was years before he won an Oscar for writing On the Waterfront. But did John Ford, the OSS chief, assign him to become the head of the OSS search team because of his, his uh, fame and the fact that the Schulberg family was already famous? Because your grandfather was a key figure in the history of, of uh, movies. Well, that's, that's true. And, you know, I don't think he assigned Bud necessarily for that reason, but but John Ford had kind of watched these boys grow up in in Hollywood and um, and uh, they my father particularly wanted to serve abroad, but they were assigned to this unit. Now, this unit, the film unit, whether they were all recruited by Ford himself or not, uh, they, it did consist mainly of people who came out of the film industry. Uh, in Bud's case, you know, he was he was already known as a writer because uh, What Makes Sammy Run was published uh, earlier to, in 1941, just 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 before the United States uh, was bombed at Pearl Harbor. So. Uh, it, it's not illogical, you know. We I haven't I have found letters from my grandfather, urging uh, my father. So my grandfather B. P. Schulberg was the father, as you noted, of Bud and Stuart Schulberg, and of their sister Sonia Schulberg. But I have got letters from B. P. urging my father to accept the assignment to the OSS. Uh, film unit because you know naturally he didn't want his youngest son to go uh to go abroad and 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 fight during the war and the the fact is that both bud and stewart uh 
it, not entirely by coincidence, because as I say, they, Ford knew knew them both. And mm-hmm. in fact, I found in my parents' photo albums, I haven't made it public yet, but but Ford in his naval uniform was present at my parents' wedding, uh, which was a tiny affair in April 1944. So there was obviously a very close connection between the, the two families. And then and years later, years after the uh, war, your father became the Emmy-winning producer of David Brinkley's journal and then the producer of NBC's Morning News uh, show today. So um, he he was already engaged in thinking along those lines, I assume. And you're the da- his daughter and the niece of Bud. How aware were you of the story when you were growing up? Did they talk about it? They really didn't. Yeah, I was very, uh, I was very, very uh, fascinated by and engaged with my father's career as a teenager and and young woman. You know, he would take. I have three younger brothers. He would take, well, me as the oldest, but occasionally, as they got older, the the younger ones uh, sometimes on location with him when he was shooting one. NBC's documentary special or another. Uh, once he took over as producer of the Today Show, we were, you know, often if he thought there was someone, that, a guest coming on that would be of particular interest to us, he would invite us to the set. So, but, you know, that was that was that was our daily life. As with as you know, many children don't, and I'm guilty of this. We don't ask about our parents' lives or careers necessarily before we showed up on the scene. And I I so regret this, you know, that I that I never had the chance or made the opportunity to talk to my father about this. Now, my because my father went back to. Uh, went back to Germany to to make Nuremberg its lesson for today and was then uh, so I was actually conceived in Berlin during the Berlin blockade uh, and then he was recruited to head the Marshall Plan film section so I was they moved to Paris about a month before I was born I was born in Paris my two younger two of my three younger brothers were born in France as well we were you couldn't grow up in, and then we moved back to Germany for two years when he was making uh, movies, which I later learned were covertly funded by the U.S. government, uh, feature films. It, it was impossible to, to grow up in post-war Europe and France and Germany without being aware of the tremendous hatred between these two countries mm-hmm. and being aware of the uh, the devastation that the war had wreaked. And so, yes, we were we were aware of this. Uh, and the sirens, I, I, I mean, this is a subliminal memory, but the sirens in France and Germany are the same sirens that you hear in films about World War II or the Holocaust. So there was a very eerie and scary, frankly, uh, echo of all this. But uh, that doesn't mean I ever 
asked my father about his making Nuremberg. I wasn't that aware of it as we were growing up. Uh, he didn't talk about it. Uh, neither did Bud. And this really was all revealed to me once we discovered this extraordinary cache of letters and documents after, after my mother's death. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Sandra Schulberg, who uh, is a co-producer of the film we are discussing that opens this Friday at DCTV's Firehouse Cinema at 87 Lafayette Street. It's called Filmmakers for the Prosecution. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. So they, they found all of this footage and use it at the, uh, the, the first, um, the International Military Tribunal in Nuremberg, the first of the 13 Nuremberg trials. Wasn't that the first time in history that motion pictures were introduced as legal evidence in a trial? Yes, it, it, it is. And, you know, they really struggled with uh, a couple of things. First of all, uh, Jackson's own team, so, see, so going back to your question about whether, you know, how how Bud got named head of the search team, I mean, in Bud's account, he was the one when they were meeting at OSS in Washington with Bill Donovan, the head of the the head of the entire uh, OSS, and with John Ford, uh, and talking about what role they were going to play uh, in preparing for the trial. Uh, Bud says he suggested using film. And they said, great, you know, how soon can you organize that? Uh, but in in any case, uh, they really, once they actually got to Germany, the, the, the small unit, Bud, Stewart, Ray Kellogg, who was actually the head of the unit, uh, and then later, the film editors that they brought over, Bob Parrish, Bob Webb, Joe Zygman, uh, they, they found that Jackson's own staff, and, and you know I think it's interesting to note that it was a U.S. Supreme Court justice, Robert H. Mm. Jackson, whom Truman named to be the chief American prosecutor. So here's an unusual situation where you have a a judge, a sitting judge, who is going to now take on the role of prosecutor. Uh, so Justice Jackson was the lead prosecutor for the American team, and he had a staff of lawyers working under him. And they, we know from my father's letters that they were extremely skeptical about the idea of using film to help bolster the case. And there's a but there's a letter from my father that's dated November nine back to my mother. He was writing to my mother. They were newly married and he was very in love and he was constantly writing to her these long typewritten pages, uh, typewritten letters, about 300 pages of letters during this period. And he writes on November nine. Uh, you know, we have finally managed to make stuffy attorneys picture conscious. That's a quote from the letter. Uh, and Jackson even called us to congratulate us on our work, saying, 
quote, a picture is worth a thousand words. Hmm. Uh, it seems that finally they began to earn the respect of Jackson's team of lawyers. And, and Bud, you know, says uh, in his documents also that, you know, as the trial date was approaching, uh, he would go regularly to Nuremberg to meet with Jackson's staff and discuss the specific counts of the indictment and what photographs or motion picture evidence they wanted. What what could they look for? What could what could uh, support the indictment? So they did begin to work, you know, hand in hand. Uh, finally, in the last part of the. A preparation for the trial. The other thing, I, I mentioned that there were two obstacles part, apart from the fact that film was being burned and it was very hard to find what they were looking for. But the other challenge was because film had not been used uh, as legal, legal evidence before, they had to figure out how to give it the character of legal evidence. So the voluminous documents and, and that they make have, it not look like it was manipulated. That's right. So the you know when you when you have a document, it generally tells you to whom it's addressed and what it's about, and then it's signed normally by by someone. And the vast majority of documents that they had were exactly like that. So they they have their they they contain their own provenance, if you will. But when you have a piece of film footage, it doesn't tell you necessarily when it was shot, for what purpose, and by whom. So how do you know how to interpret it? And uh, so one of the things they did, and I, I pulled out the affidavit, uh, they, they, they decided to write an affidavit and film it and put it at the head of the film material. So the, uh, the, I, I just, may I read you this little of affidavit? Course. Of yeah. course. Yeah. So this is the head, headed United States Navy Department, Washington, D.C., certificate and affidavit, and it's from uh, E.R. Kellogg Lieutenant, uh, I hereby certify that from 1921 to 1941, I was employed at 20th Century Fox Studios in Hollywood, California, as a director of photographic effects, and I'm familiar with all photographic techniques, too. Since 6, since 6 September 1941 to the present date of 27 August 1945, I have been on active duty with the United States Navy. Three. I have carefully examined the motion picture film to be shown following this affidavit, and I certify that the images of these, uh, that the images of these excerpts from the original negative have not been retouched, distorted, or otherwise altered in any respect, and are true copies of the original held in the vaults of the United States Army Signal Corps. For no, these excerpts. Oh. Let me just finish this is the last piece. These experts these excerpts comprise 6,000 feet of film selected from 80,000 feet, all of which I've reviewed and all of which is similar in character to these excerpts. 
and then it's it's signed by Kellogg, and it's co-signed by John Ford, Captain U.S. Navy. So they they filmed this, uh, and I, I misspoke. I said it was the affidavit in front of Nazi concentration camps. It was the affidavit that they filmed at the head of the Nazi plan. And the Nazi plan consisted of material that they had found uh, in Europe, consisting entirely of footage shot by German cameramen. Uh, they had started, as, as we say in the film, Bud had started looking at uh, German newsreel footage that had been imported into the U.S., but once they got through that entire process, they were told by Jackson's, Jackson and his staff that they couldn't use any material that had already made its way to the United States. They had to start over from material that they were to find in Germany because they were so concerned about this charge from the defendant's attorneys that this material had been tampered with. Yeah. Now, after the trial, the War Department commissioned your father to make the official U.S. documentary called Nuremberg, its lesson for today, uh, which can, includes a lot of the damning evidence that the OSS team assembled for the courtroom. Why was it intentionally buried by the U.S. Department of War just a few years later in 1948 and not shown again until 2010? Well... That's an interesting, interesting story, and it is took a while. Is this a, a Cold while. War story? Yep, it is a Cold War story, uh, but it's also a story about uh, about the fear on the part of high-level uh, military officers, both in the United States and abroad, of having of being themselves prosecuted. So. The ultimate, we, my, my colleague and friend John Barrett, who's a professor of law at St. John's School of Law, uh, is the one who found the, the so-called smoking gun letter. It's from Kenneth Royal, who was secretary of the Army at the time. And in the letter, which is addressed to Justice Jackson, he says, you know, this film is not in the interest of the Army. Uh, he lists the army first or the nation, and we will not be releasing it to the general public. He goes on to say that he has no objection to it being shown, you know, privately by, by people who have a need to see it. But we also know that when Jackson requested a print of the film to show to a meeting of the New York Bar Association, he was he was prevented from doing so. Hmm. And he ended up showing the Russian film about the trial. And he was really steamed about this. There is uh, there are letters about this. He was furious. Uh, so they kept they were keeping a pretty tight lid on it. And and I believe uh because there were, because Royal and a few other U.S. military officials were very uncomfortable, let's say, with the fact that at Nuremberg, not only civilian leaders were were prosecuted and punished, but also top-ranking military leaders. 
and they didn't feel that was fair. And that really goes to the heart of why the United States is not a party to the International Criminal Court, because we we still have the same fear that we, we have uh, more military men and women stationed all over the world than any other uh, country, and, and we don't want our servicemen and women, let alone their commanders, to be hauled into an international court and prosecuted the way we prosecuted high-ranking German military leaders at Nuremberg. The other reasons why, uh, because there was there was obviously controversy and disagreement about whether this film should be shown. So, it and you've you know, restored it, haven't you? Yes, haven't we restored, you restored it. Nuremberg is lesson for today. So Joshua is that available somewhere? Restored. Yes, it is. Thank. I'm very happy to say that Kino Lorber is releasing it alongside uh, mm. Filmmakers for the Prosecution. And it's really the perfect, Filmmakers for the Prosecution is the perfect entree to the film about the trial because it, it really helps you understand how it was made. It, it's sort of a making of film. Uh, and both of these films are really, they, they contain multitudes. There are so many films, let alone individual images, within these films. So it, it, we, we hope, I hope, that you know, people tend to just consume films whole. And when I was traveling with Nuremberg, uh, after its New York Film Festival release in 2010, it, it played in theaters around the country for about a year and a half. And I was often traveling with the film. And I, I watched people consume it because people knew so little, and I think still do, about, about uh, the Nuremberg trial and about the underlying issues. A, a lot of people associate it to the extent they do know something about it with crimes against humanity they're you almost uniformly unaware that one of the major major accounts of the indictment was the very act of of starting a war the the crime of aggression which we see again in ukraine and uh so that was and jackson you know, called war the 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 supreme crime from which all the other crimes derive. Uh, so it was really it was really uh, fascinating to to take the film around. But as I say, people tended to just swallow it whole. And one of the things we tried to do with filmmakers for the prosecution is is teach you something in a albeit in an entertaining way, but teach you something about how these films are constructed and and how filmmakers end up having to use, to, having to misappropriate footage. That, that's the term we use within this mm -hmm. field of cinematography of the Holocaust. And I think one of the, there are two really interesting examples of this in uh in Nuremberg, it's lesson for today, and they're picked up in filmmakers for the prosecution. 
it, you've you've seen the, the film, and I think you may remember the shot of the the young children, very young children, rolling up their sleeves and showing their tattoos. Mm-hmm. And the, these kids in my father's film are standing in for the main and half children who were asphyxiated who and, and incinerated during during the Holocaust. But those children, and they were filmed by the Russians at the liberation of Auschwitz, which which happened January 27th. So this coming Friday will be the the anniversary, and it's called Auschwitz Liberation Day. Um, these children were the ones who survived. So, but when you watch the film, you you just you can't help feeling that you're looking at kids who were about to go into the gas chambers, about to be herded into the gas chambers, and yet they're the ones who survive. But of course, my father. No one has footage of the kids who were who were uh, annihilated. So, as a filmmaker, you you know you 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 turn and you use a piece of film that can stand in and sort of tell that story for you. Uh, the other the other sequence that is really incredibly disturbing and and. Your attitude towards it may change when, when you understand who filmed it and when. It's the it's rather famous footage of at Bergen Belsen of emaciated bodies being bulldozed into a mass mm. grave. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so shocking. And, and, and those bodies are so emaciated; it's almost hard to believe that they were once human. Indeed. And there are two women SS officers or camp guards who are in one case picking up a body that is so hmm. so emaciated, of course, that they can easily lift it up and toss it into the grave like 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 a piece of 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 wood um, or a twig, you know, and what I have found, so so when you're watching that, it is you you immediately assume that this is footage that was shot by the Germans and that they shot it while it was while while it was happening, and of course it is happening right before your eyes. But the fact is, it was filmed by British camera who were present for the liberation of Bergen Belsen, and these these camp guards. And the bulldozer operator are doing this at the command of the British liberators because it was necessary to to prevent further outbreak of disease. It was necessary, they thought, to immediately bury the dead bodies. I have to let the audience know that they're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York. 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Hi, 
I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Sandra Schulberg. The, the first two listeners who sign up to become members of WBAI for $50 or more during today's show will receive a pair of tickets to the screening of her film, Filmmakers for the Prosecution. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Sandra Schulberg, uh, the film that we're discussing uh, is uh, based on uh, a, a, something she published in 2014. Uh, it now uh, is opening this coming Friday at DCTV's Firehouse Cinema at 87 Lafayette Street. Now, um, the story doesn't end there. Uh, you, 75 years after the trial, Jean-Christophe Klotz, who directed this film, returned to the German salt mines and haystacks where Bud Schulberg discovered film footage. And didn't he uncover never-before-seen footage? There was stuff that was still there that had not been destroyed? Yeah, that was really extraordinary when I saw that. And, you know, Jean-Christophe and his, his uh, archival film researcher were they were really searching for any period footage uh, to use as b-roll to to show what you know how how films were editing they they were searching for just sort of generic footage of people handling film and editing film and among the 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 materials that she found was this this sequence uh, which fortunately they realized as they were looking at it but they they then sent it to me and said is this is this steward this Jean Christophe said this this looks like a steward uh, and sure enough it it was uh, now I was able to to tell from looking at it that it had not been shot during the search for film for the trial. Obviously, they were working under such pressure; they weren't filming themselves doing doing the search. But once Stewart came back to to Germany to make Nuremberg its lesson for today, I posit, but we don't know yet. We haven't found these records, the paper records that, again, would tell you what that film, why that film was shot and by whom. But I posit that they were probably planning to make a little film about the making of Nuremberg, its lesson for today, uh, as part of the release campaign in Germany. And so they filmed Stuart and you see, you can see Joe Zygman in the footage, who was the editor of Nuremberg and who had been with Stuart and Bud, one of the uh, members of the OSS film team, preparing uh, the two films for the trial, uh, and other people. I recognize uh, uh, the the woman editor and a, a couple of other people, and it it is sort of I mean it's it's was great fun to see this because I had never seen footage of my father 
uh, from that age. And in, and it was also, it was just fascinating in itself to, to realize, oh, they were trying to, after the fact, they were trying to document this. And it's true. In my, my, my father's letters, he describes finding footage in, uh, in, in, the, in some uh, crop fields, in a, in a haystack. Uh, so this wasn't invented. It was based on, on uh, his own experience and Bud's experiences. Now, the images uh, they presented in the courtroom are famous, but the story of the search by uh, your uncle and your father hasn't been told on, on film until now. And as you point out, there's previously never before seen footage of them, and we learned a lot from their private letters. Why has it taken so many years for this to finally become <laughs> public knowledge? After all, uh, this is all kind of ancient history, but uh, very important history. Uh, the United States was uh, drawn into World War II. Lots of people died. It changed That's the whole face sure. of Europe. It did indeed. Uh, and you know, it's not just the case with, with our story, but I'm continually amazed at what is coming out uh, as in some cases now it's because the the generation that fought the war or survived the war as 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 victims of the holocaust are dying and their and their children and grandchildren are uncovering materials that they kept that maybe no one paid attention to i mean that's that's kind of the story of our family's material we we didn't know it was there hmm. and we only discovered it when we were emptying my mom's apartment, you know, and it's really a miracle because my my because of my father's work, we basically moved every two years for his entire career. He he did die very young at age 56. And then my mother also moved quite a bit after his death. And they took this material everywhere with them, everywhere. So it was hidden away in the in the loft um i've noted that we also found a 16 millimeter print my father's personal print of nuremberg it had been sitting under the tv set for <laughs> decades with people putting their wine glasses on it i mean one party after another and we never uh, opened the can uh, so it, it was it was not uh, anything we could use for the restoration, but it was just symbolic, really, of how buried this story had become in my father's own career and certainly in the awareness of his children. Uh, so that that is that's kind of the nature of of all this, Leonard. I I mean. I, d I don't know your experience, but I think it just, it takes a long time for this to come out. And then, I mean, I did, it took me years to really understand all the, doc put them in order, understand the documents, get get help. Because, you know, I, I was a movie maker, yes, yeah, so that helped. I was a movie producer when I discovered all this. But I was not a historian. I was not 
a specialist in the cinematography of the Holocaust, I had to get I had to get scholars to come in and look at these papers and help me understand them. So that was a whole process. Then it took another five years to raise the money. You know, then I decided once I learned the film had been suppressed, the original documentary about the trial, and it took me about five years to raise the money to restore it. And then after that, to do the digital edition for which I wrote the booklet and, and did for the first time kind of start to tell this story. Uh, before my uncle Bud died, he and I were working on a book, a big book, I mean, a, a, about the whole story because there were so many fascinating documents and letters that it is it is worth the book. It, the, the story I told in in my booklet is is just a, a, a an outline, a distillation. Mm. It's not the whole story by any means. And, and we keep on learning more. Your your film's European version premiered at the 2022 New York Jewish Film Festival as the Lost Film of Nuremberg, and this new what? version is longer, right? Uh, and has all no, sorts of things. It, it's not longer. No, it's 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 the same film. It's if it's longer by a minute, that's because we oh. we had to add the American credits. We did a new American version uh, with narration recorded by an American narrator, Jessica DeSalvo, and we had my brother Casey reads my father's letters, and Bud's son Ben reads his father's uh, text. So we, we and I, I worked on this with Josh Waletsky and, and John Bowen, my partners from the restoration of Nuremberg. So it's, but it's, we didn't change Jean-Christophe's film. I, I want to make that clear. It's okay. the same film. But we did, in the course of creating the American narration, we, we did make a few changes, a few corrections, uh, and we gave it a new a new title uh, because the the title the temporary title that that Arte, who was our main financier, had chosen the Lost Film of Nuremberg was really very confusing and it wasn't really the story that the film is telling. Uh, the the story that the film is telling is about how motion pictures were used to for the first time to convict uh, war criminals. And so Filmmakers for the Prosecution is really, really conveys what the film's about. We don't have a lot, more than a few more minutes left, but I wonder if you could tell us a bit about Eli Rosenbaum, who served for 30 years in the Office of Special Investigations of the U.S. Department of Justice, prosecuting Nazis in the United States and extraditing others to await trial in Germany. Well, isn't, I think isn't you he still so involved much. in the government right now? Yes, I'm. I'm really glad you you bring up his name because Eli, who, I mean, I don't. I know he doesn't like to be called this particularly, but he he was our most famous Nazi hunter for forty years, and very effective as head of the office of uh, special investigations, which grew out of Liz Holzman's legislation. Uh, back in the 70s, uh, requiring that we find and prosecute people who had come into the country uh, 
without divulging their uh, their Nazi past. So that occupied him for many, 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 many years. But Merrick, in June, Attorney General Merrick Garland named him to be our lead investigator into war crimes in Ukraine. And his are, are parallels being seen? Uh, extraordinary parallels. And he talks about that. Uh, he, he talks about the, the lessons of Nuremberg in Filmmakers for the Prosecution. And in, he came to New York for the, the uh, Queen's World Film Festival premiere of Filmmakers for the Prosecution and spoke very directly about this and about the challenges that he's having, uh, you know, documenting uh, war crimes in Ukraine and the question of what kind of tribunal will be set up to, to prosecute these crimes. You know, and then the question will be, can the, can the perpetrators be apprehended? Can they actually be brought into a court of law? But it is very important to document it while it's happening. And that is happening thanks to many people in Ukraine and people who are sharing that information, not just with Eli Rosenbaum, who represents the United States, but with his counterparts in, in other in countries uh, in Europe. So they're going to have, uh, and of course, now, as he says uh, in the film, and as he says in interviews uh, around the film, now film has become an acceptable form of evidence. I, just, I, I wondered about one other thing. Lenny Riefenstahl, uh, the, mm -hmm. uh, the great filmmaker, uh, uh, claimed when she was captured that she was not aware of the nature of the concentration camps. How aware were, was the, the general public, or but somebody like Lenny Riefenstahl, who was in the highest echelons, aware of what was going on at the time? Well, this is a subject of enormous debate. Um, I mean, Riefenstahl, for, for, for the listening audience, was... Um, arrested, not not as a, a war criminal, but detained, I would say, as a as a kind of material witness informant by my uncle Bud, who who uh, documents that he found her at her her Bavarian country house and uh, brought her to Nuremberg to help them to sit in the editing room with them and help them identify the faces of people oh, in the footage. Real problem here. <clears throat> Excuse me. I guess we should end it there. And uh, okay. my great thanks, because we're having uh, suddenly having a problem. Your uh, everything you're saying is breaking up. But uh, oh, yeah. want to recommend this film to our audience. Uh, it opens in New York this coming Friday at uh, DCTV's Firehouse Cinema at 87 Lafayette Street, downtown. And it has been my great pleasure to speak with Sandra Schulberg, who provided a lot of the material that goes into the film, including its title and a, a, a 130-page monograph that she wrote, Call Filmmakers for the Prosecution. I want to thank her so much for being on our show today. It's been a great honor having you here. Thank you so much.
Well, it's my honor, and I thank you. I thank you, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else and as I mentioned earlier the first two listeners who sign up to become members of WBAI for $50 or more during today's show can receive a pair of tickets to the screening of the film we've been discussing Filmmakers for the Prosecution so why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, however many dollars a month you feel comfortable giving us, as long as you are willing to. It allows us to plan for the future. Uh, and we'll say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or, ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. And we are the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener sponsored. So help Keep us alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope that you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be Mary Beth Albright discussing her new book, Eat and Flourish. We'll see you then. 